You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Little Englanders or World Citizens, chaired by Catherine Mayer, editor-at-large of Time magazine, with speakers Melanie Phillips, Nihal Othanayaka, Stefan Stern and Sunda Katvala. Let me start with an, an introduction to the panel. Um, and of course, we're all here to answer the question of who we are and in keeping with the Names Not Numbers theme, why that matters. Um, I guess that the sort of core question as posed by the brief that Julia gave me is, in a globalised world, what are the tools to thrive, not only economically, but um, to find a, a level of comfort? So, um, joining me to discuss this, um, I'm sure you know Melanie, she's a social commentator whose columns currently appear in The Times, and her best-selling book, uh, Londonistan, I never can say it, how do you say it? Londonistan. Um, is clearly very germane to this topic. Um, Nihal is an award-winning radio <coughs> presenter, um, who uh, started um, for his sins in the music industry, but is now also very much at home discussing uh, all sorts of things on a phone-in program from religion to uh, politics. Stefan um, is someone who dabbled, not dabbled, was, was through himself, through Stop himself dabbling. into... Journalism. I was going to say dabbled in PR and is now a. Yeah, yeah, that was a dabble. That was the dabble. And is now visiting. What was a dabble? Well, obviously, you found uh, journalism and PR not sufficiently rigorous, and he's, he's now a, a visiting professor at the Cass Business School. And um, Sander, who was the director of the Fabians, I recently encountered at a black tie event and was totally thrown to see him in his black tie finery, but he looked great, and he's now the director of British Future, which is a non-partisan think tank. Um, the, uh, sorry, as I said, underslept. Um, <laughs> I think we should really start not, not just with those little professional thumbnails, but, but talking about our cultural identities, because that is also key to this discussion. Um, so, I asked everyone just to give me a little description in these terms. Melanie is a second-generation Londoner from a family of Jewish immigrants. Her father's parents came to the UK from Poland, and her mother's grandparents came from not what is now Belarus. Nihal describes himself as a Tottenham Hotspur supporting Essex boy of Sri Lankan heritage. His parents came to the UK in the 1960s and his father was a conservative voting Thatcherite who read the Times every day, and mum went along with what father thought. Um, Sander was born in a Doncaster hospital in the mid-1970s to parents who'd come to this country from India and Ireland, and who met because they both worked for that great British institution, the NHS. Um, and Stefan is the son of a Czech immigrant dad, um, and a mother whose family arrived in the UK in the 19th century from 
The Baltic region. The Baltic region. Um, <laughs> Stefan, Stefan is also Jewish. I'm making this point not to, not to out <laughs> Stefan. Or, um, but, you know, it, interestingly, in this um, Names Not Numbers and on this panel, uh, we Jews are statistically richly overrepresented, and that is that is also relevant because there is, of course, such a thing as a Jewish identity. And you know, we're we're all, if on the surface of this, we would all appear to be what in that description of today's panel might be termed world citizens, at least in terms of our antecedents. Um, I am. Personally, and <laughs> I'm so tired I wrote this down in case I forgot, <laughs> I'm American by birth and still by nationality, but I have uh, also picked up a British passport along the way. Um, now, I would never describe myself as English, even though I hold a British passport, um, though I'm very comfortable calling myself Londoner. And uh, I wanted just to start with a little bit of interactivity to find out who on the panel calls themselves English, but also to get a show of hands on this. Um, but let's start, which, which of you would call yourselves English? English-ish. <laughs> I would call myself British. Right, okay. <coughs> so, um, in the audience, first of all, how many people were born in this country? Okay, so that's the vast majority of you. Um, when I say this country, how many of you born in England? Okay, and so all of you are happy calling yourselves English, presumably. English? <laughs> you can you can be both. You can be both if you want. Cumbrian. Um, well, let's let's see let's see if we can let's see if we can find some consensus around this issue of of identity and as I say how we find a kind of comfort level with these interestingly. Uh, mobile <coughs> identities that we have and, and multi-layered identities that we have. But also let's think about some of the big questions that are roiling the political scene at the moment. Um, you know, British, but what's British without Scotland, for example? Um, the, there is a, a kind of nationalist response to globalization, which you're seeing in many countries, which is about redrawing borders and reasserting identities that may not even be true. Um, one of the great hallmarks of the far right is a nostalgia for a past that never was. So, you know, how, what, what alternatives are there to that kind of nationalism that is nostalgic for a past that never was? Must we always define ourselves against other people? Um, who in this room passes Norman Tebbit's cricket tests? What are the dangers of failure to answer this question uh, in an age of so-called homegrown terrorism, which is obviously something that Melanie has, has in some ways addressed? And um, also, um, the, the, in the age of austerity, can we have community or are we bound just to have competition? Um, so I think 
these are some of the questions we might address, but what I'm going to do is sit down, shut up, and let the panelists give an opening sort of statement of where they might be on the broader question, but also to suggest some of the questions that we might usefully address during this session. <coughs> so let me start with Melanie. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and to have this very fascinating discussion. <clears throat> and I think from the remarks that have already been made, um, what I've picked up um, is something which uh, strikes me all the time, that we all have, uh, not just as the cliche goes, multiple, or many of us have multiple identities, but we all have a great need to feel we belong, and some of us feel we belong to uh, different groups simultaneously, which adds to the complications of life. But nevertheless, the instinct to belong um, and to express <coughs> what we are through um, a group is very strong. Now, um, I was very interested in the way this discussion was phrased in the sense of the title, um, Global Citizen or Citizen of the World, whatever it was, um, or Little Englander, yeah. because I think this reflects a very prevalent um, antithesis uh, in which it basically goes like this. Um, uh, I am a citizen of the world. I feel myself to be a global citizen. That is to say, I don't feel myself to be trammeled by the narrow confines of uh, uh, belonging to a particular nation or a particular culture. I am enlightened. <clears throat> I am sophisticated. I am forward-thinking. I am tolerant. I am liberal. And therefore, I am a citizen of the world. I care about the world. I don't just care about my own people. That's really not very nice. Um, I show that I am <clears throat> much more... Uh, enlightened than that by caring about everybody simultaneously. And therefore, um, I very much approve of international, transnational and supranational institutions and instruments such as the European Union, such as the United Nations, such as the International Criminal Court, such as human rights law. Transnational human rights law should be actually supreme because we all, as citizens of the world, brotherhood of man, subscribe to uh, values which are, are universal um, and indivisible. <clears throat> and anyone who doesn't think like me is a little Englander. Uh, narrow, stultifying, backward-looking, not sophisticated, intolerant, um, and generally a thoroughly unpleasant piece of work. Um, now, I am not a global citizen. I am not a world citizen. Um, I'm someone who believes in democracy and in freedom. And I believe that the alternative to being a global citizen is to believe in the importance of nation and national identity. Because in my view, nation, the, the nation, is the one instrument uh, which, by which we can actually achieve democracy and freedom. And if we undermine the nation, what we end up is some kind of tribalism, some kind of situation where group is against group because it's only the nation which provides an overarching set of values to which we can all adhere and which gives us a kind of shared partnership in a common national project. Now, that absolutely does not mean that we cannot therefore have individual identities, individual cultural identities, religious identities, uh, other identities, which can exist very happily uh, under the umbrella of national identity. Where it becomes problematic is where those individual identities may conflict with the national uh, basic uh, values and uh, where the people actually think they should take 
precedence over those national values. That's where friction might arise. But there is, in principle, uh, no reason why we can't all have uh, multiple identities and the nation becomes all the richer for it. But if we try and suggest that the nation is somehow illegitimate, then I think we diminish democracy and freedom. Do you have a question you want to, you, you feel that we should be addressing here that, that arises from what you've just said? Um, well, I would, I would like to explore why so many people seem to have assumed, because it is a very, what I've described I think is a very common assumption that there is something illegitimate about national identity, that national identity equals nationalism, nationalism <coughs> equals prejudice, bigotry and war. Uh, national identity can lead to those things, but quite it seems to me quite obviously that there are uh, innate advantages to national identity. And what perplexes me is why so many people really find that very problematic. Great. Michal. Um, I think, um, unlike what I've experienced in America, we're... we're if you're of a certain age, you grew up where a Union Jack meant people with very short hair chasing you down the street and calling you a packy. So having that sense of the nation being behind you and you being part of that nation was severely undermined by that process. And it's only in the last 10 years or 15 years where that has been reclaimed, where I would say I'm you know, proud to be British and I can see a Union Jack without thinking <coughs> of that without thinking that that's not my identity. Um, but we still have a problem with actually identifying our British identity. I interviewed on my Asian Network show a guy who was then um, involved in the British National Party, and he was slagging off immigration as he would, because that's his job, um, and then he said, you know, we've lost our British identity, and I asked him, well, what is that? And he said, how dare you ask me what British identity <laughs> is? And I said, well, what is it? If I lose my car keys, I know what they look like. So if you've lost something, surely you must be able to identify what that is. And he couldn't answer the question. And how do we have a national identity if we ourselves can't define what British is? I think we can in very broad strokes, but it's interesting, I'm married to an American and whether they are Indian-American or whether they're Pakistani-American or Nigerian-American, they feel this sense of being American. And they, however abstract it may seem, they, they, they seem to identify with being American. We have, we have a real trouble here in persuading <coughs> second-generation people, maybe even white British indigenous people, what being British actually is. So... That's where, and that vacuum allows the BMP and the EDL and those kind of things to kind of jump in that, but even those morons can't define it. So is that your question that you'd like to add in? Do you yeah, want us I, to, I just, in I, this, I, I in this very small there, focus group? The problem is as well, though, if a politician decides to try and define it, we all, because of our cynicism directed at those people, don't accept it. I just wonder where, where does that charter come from that tells you you're British? I know there's the citizenship tests now, isn't there? Now, I've not obviously sat one of those. I don't think anyone here has sat a citizenship test. But I wonder if that is the... Maybe we should all do that. Should five-year-olds in British schools be told, you are British, and this is what British means, and then every year 
throughout their schooling, they have to be reminded of that. I recently did the citizenship test online, not not because did I needed to. I failed. I failed. You failed it. Yeah. Um, so so. Are please, you an illegal? Please then? please don't take tell what? anyone because I am worried they'll take. Of people fail it. Yeah. Indigenous Britons fail it. Yeah. Everyone who's taking it passes because they've learned it in the book. <laughs> but, but what? But it's what? Like it, a civil servant entrance exam. But what it isn't is it isn't about British identity. Really, really weirdly, it's it's about sort of slightly arcane bits of knowledge. Well, I'd, I'd like to know what what words you would think of that define Britishness, being British? Oh, that's a fun game to play at this time of the morning. Well, um, I just... Because if we, if, we, if we can't do it, then it allows people who are... A friend of mine works in the diplomatic service. He's a deputy ambassador somewhere. He's a British-Pakistani guy. And one of his friends who lives in Bradford says, I have no need to integrate with British people. White British people, mm -hmm. I have no need. Everyone on my street speaks Urdu. The guy who runs the shop speaks Urdu. I send my kids to a school where the majority of the kids speak Urdu. I have no reason to speak to white British people at all. Or, and that scares the hell out of me. Scares the hell out of me, because that's not the country I want my kids to be brought up in. And I'm struggling as my... I've got a six and a four-year-old. How do I tell them what British means? They've got much more of an idea what Sri Lankan means. But I'm not sure... Because, of course, that whole multiculturalism thing almost made you feel, as a white British person, embarrassed, I think, to talk about your white Britishness yeah. without, without offending us. But, newsflash, we wouldn't have been offended. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. Sander? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm British, I'm English. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting, some English people are a bit, you know anxious about being English, probably OK with people being Scottish, but that's interesting. I agree with Melanie about the problem of the question. You know, the poor little Englanders, they only wanted to oppose the Boer War. You know, not necessarily our most popular of, or sort of ethical of wars that we've, uh, that we've fought. And, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's an instrumental argument if you're... I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be British, and I would like the society, my country, to be confident in itself, confident in its ability to engage internationally in the world, to think that engaging in international and multilateral institutions and upholding human rights reflects our interests and values. And the instrumental argument would be the very worst way to do that would be to say, well, let's be world citizens, and if you don't agree with me, you're a stupid little Englander. That's, uh, that's, that's not going to work. But I don't think it's just an instrumental argument. I think it's a, it's a principled <coughs> argument, actually, as well. You're, you're not a world citizen. Um, uh, you can only want to be a world citizen if certain conditions are met. You need a secure passport. You need a functioning state. And you need a national identity that people accept and don't, and don't question. And if you're absolutely indifferent to national identity to the point of being allergic to it, you're probably a person for whom none of those things have ever been in question. Because if you're a person for whom those things have been in question, as uh, Nihal was saying, uh, then you'd actually have a stronger understanding of why it was quite important, not only that I know that I was born British, but that my claim to be equally British as everybody else is accepted by other people. That's actually an important part of my identity. So I didn't, I didn't know when I was eight years old that the question of whether or not I was English 
was in question. I found out that when I was a teenager, when I was eight years old, I wanted to know if Kevin Keegan would be fit for the World Cup. And, you know, it was a struggle and he missed the goal. Anyway, I didn't know that I didn't have an equal, time, an equal claim on that team. And then in my teenage years, you know, we tried to sort that out because some people, you know, do you pick black players for England and do you count the goals if you scored them? General view in the country was you counted the goals if the black players scored them. And there's a little NF group of England supporters who chanted the score without the goals of the black players. And, yeah, it doesn't work very well, actually. And what if you pick a black goalkeeper? So those people kind of left, <laughs> those people kind of left the stadium, actually. And so we had a form of national identity that, that worked. But I don't, I don't want to be um, a world citizen, because you can't be a world citizen. You can be an internationalist individual. You want a liberal society where you have the autonomy to choose your identity. But you're a citizen of the country, and it's an abdication, actually, of your democratic responsibility to argue for your country's engagement in the world that, 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 that you want. And uh, just say something about why it, why it doesn't work as a way of winning the argument. If you take the sort of, sort of the more fearful argument that, that will be projected onto people who are called Little England. I mean, there's an argument against difference, against diversity, against immigration. It's always an argument about them and us. And it always goes something like, there are too many of them, numbers. They're taking what's ours, resources. They don't want to be like us. They're not like us. They're not going to be. And we're not allowed to talk about it. Or um, we'll get called racist. And it's quite a powerful, potent set of arguments. And I think there are two ways not to, not to take that argument on if you, if you wouldn't want that form of quite angry, anxious them and us politics. One would be to say, we've run all the numbers. Actually, it's fine. The Treasury found out that you know, they've paid a bit more into the pot than they've taken out. Um, might be true. But that, that's actually, they are good for us is a them and us story, actually. It's very transactional, it's very instrumental, and it doesn't really uh, work. But the other thing to say is, well, who wants us in this age we live in? You know, if it's going to work with them, then they'll, you know, the answer is we're citizens of the world. There's no us anymore. It was a mistake to hold on to a sense of us. The price for having a diverse society is there's no us anymore. Well, that, that will work brilliantly if that's <coughs> what you emotionally wanted, which very few people do. But it isn't a way of saying, how do we make us work? Who, you know, the new us now, how will we still be us? And actually, you know, Nihal's anxious about, you know, whether we know what it means. We're better at it than we think. Britishness has had a capacity to absorb and accommodate influences. And we won't take it from a politician's speech, but we saw Danny Boyle tell us the history of our country. And it resonated with people who weren't expecting to feel a little, you know, glint of pride and a bit of a tear in the eye. So... Your question... I think why, why, if you think that culture matters to people, and, I mean, I would like to know why, if you think that Scottish or Welsh identity is legitimate, would it not be true of um, English identity? And why, if you think identity does matter to minorities, which I think we've had a politics that it does, if culture matters to minorities, does it matter to majorities as well? What, what, what do you want to say to the majority... Uh, most people in this country about their cultural identity and why it matters? Is that a legitimate question to ask and answer? Great, thank you. Stefan? <clears throat> You've probably forgotten uh, that not very long ago, before the end of the Cold War, before the Soviet Union, there was something quite fashionable called post-nationalism. We used to talk about that. In 1988, I was a teacher, uh, working as a teacher at a, a school in Germany, South Dabbling. Uh, for a year, yes. 
part of my degree. <laughs> uh, a sprach assistant, as I was called. They're there to speak English in a genuine and authentic way. Um, and one morning, I was in deep, this is deep southern Catholic uh, West Germany, and this was during the Seoul Olympics. And, um, and one morning, a boy came in in the class and said that he'd very, very happy because um, last night in one of the events, uh, West Germany had come first, second, and third in uh, what, track and field or something. And that um, they played the national anthem and all three flags went up slowly at the top. And I think he was very happy about that. And the rest of the class burst out laughing. They had never heard anything more ridiculous in their lives. This is West Germany, post-national West Germany in 1988. Around about the time, there were also the European elections when I was in Germany, it would have been in 89, wouldn't it? <laughs> and one of the, the radical right parties had a poster with the German flag on it, and the wording was, uh, Zuerst Deutschland, dann Europa. This was the European elections. First Germany, then Europe. And my colleagues in the common room, conservative or social democrat alike, were absolutely appalled by that poster. They thought this was an, an unsayable thing, um, an impossible thing to say at, in the German context. Now, um, you know better than me, Catherine, but um, I'm not quite so sure those sentiments would be utterly unmentionable or unsayable in Germany today. I think we've stopped talking about post-nationalism, and I think Melanie made lots of strong and important points about, if you like, the resurgence of the idea of nation. Um, it is said all politics is local, and I think Sunder's point about a cohesive national identity is, is terribly important. So post-nationalism, maybe someone will make a case for it and, and try and defend it. I think, in some senses, it was quite a good idea. It was quite a nice idea while it lasted. It was perhaps, if you like, peak europhilia. Uh, but uh, I think the Front National has done rather well in yesterday's elections in France. Uh, we can see UKIP probably going to do pretty well this May, uh, it does not seem to be in keeping with the mood of the times, but there is an appetite for definition, you know, national identity. Um, I, I'm sorry, I probably am going to talk a little bit about sport. It is sort of almost inevitable. We've mentioned the Tebbit test. The great problem with the Tebbit test was that it was very un-English. Well, I went to quite a posh school. I was taught to applaud the opposing batsman when he walked to the wicket. And also I was told that the, if the best team won... That was fine. If the Pakistani or West Indian or New Zealand cricketers came to Lords and slaughtered our bowlers, we should applaud them because they were playing the game better than we were playing the game. So to the idea that England first and you've got to cheer for England even if the other team are much better, I think is, is wrong. So Terrett was wrong. Uh, in, in he didn't the, go to a good public school. Uh, <laughs> in, um, in the rugby recently, which is again called the Six Nations Tournament, and we have four home nations playing, strangely, I found myself in the closing minutes... Uh, it would have helped England's cause if France had beaten Ireland in the last couple of minutes, of those of you who were watching. And I found myself strangely wanting Ireland to win because I was admiring the way they were playing. Now, actually, I'm an England supporter in rugby, but actually... I can't support France. <laughs> well, perhaps not, perhaps not. But in theory, I should have wanted uh, Ireland to lose, but I didn't. I was admiring the way they, are, they were playing. So these things are... A very common. I've always. Found, I think there is more of an English problem than a British problem as well. I have to say this um, because during yes, that rugby tournament, when the, the Celtic nations come on to play, when Scotland play Wales, I sort of think I know what's going on. And even Ireland, with all that rather complicated history, which is a British understatement, um, are playing as an all-Ireland team. Even then, you sort of know who they are. And yet, when when an England team run out onto a pitch, sometimes, what's the answer? Who, what nation is it? And, and who's cheering for them? I mean, I understand why Tebbit asked the question and then came up with the wrong answer. 
I rather enjoyed it when Amir Khan's dad, during the boxing, had a, both a Pakistani and a Union Jack flag on his shoulders. I thought that was a, a sophisticated and clever and honest thing to do, and I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was fine. Uh, so we do have multiple identities, but I think the appetite for cohesive national identity is strong and perhaps growing as a response to this menacing, complicated world. So who sets our... Who sets that national identity? So, for instance, there's a lot of people who don't feel proud to be British because of the war in Iraq. So they think that that's undermined their faith in being proud to be British. And at the moment when Western nations are lecturing Russia, they're saying to themselves, well, you can't take the moral high ground with, this, with Putin because of what you did. So who sets, who tells us who do we trust enough to believe that they represent Britishness or that they are, they are defining it for us when, if it's the nation state and the nation state is the government and we don't trust the government, and we don't believe them, then what does that do to our faith in a nation state? I think there's a difference between policy and identity. I mean, it's a bit like a family. No, but you belong to a family, but identity. you can disapprove of something that your family member has done, but you still love the, your family member. It's a bit, it's a bit like that. But I mean, it depends you can't what they've of, done. No, well, it, well yeah, no, it because we, we... And to take the family... I don't, don't want to stretch the family metaphor too far, but, but even people who do terrible things, their children still feel that they're, 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 they are their children. Um, now, one can't stretch it too far. A nation isn't a family, per se. But nevertheless... Um, the fact that you know your country does something which you disapprove of, uh, uh, you say the war in Iraq, um, I, I wouldn't have thought myself that was a national identity deal breaker. Um, I think that it may be it may have been which somewhat more problematic to be say a German in Nazi Germany. Um, then you do have a problem uh, because then the nation itself is caught up in in something which is you know literally unlivable with. And that, that poses a very serious problem of, of allegiance. But even so, allegiance is not the same as identity. If you are in a country which has been taken over by some sort of totalitarian madness, you can certainly feel that you don't have allegiance to that country. You can certainly feel that you must take up arms against that country in these very extreme circumstances. <laughs> if it's been taken over by a totalitarian uh, uh, or fascist regime, or whatever it is. But even then, I would suggest that you wouldn't stop feeling German. It's I, part of what you are. And so I think there's a bit of a confusion here I, between what a country is and what it does. I think so, too, because those biggest questions about what a country does in its name are important because they're fiercely fought, whether it's the Iraq War or the Boer War, actually. They're fiercely fought about what's being done in your name, actually. You're very keen on the Boer War, It's quite powerful. It's where we get the Little Englander thing from. But um, it's actually it's quite interesting, isn't it? If you look at the centenary of the First World War, just go back 100 years this time, the question of whether we should have got involved in or not is a, is a meaningful question that is debated out in the BBC, and we all find it meaningful. Should, should Britain have done something or not which would have tipped the balance. We don't debate whether or not Russia or France or Austria-Hungary or Serbia should have made the decisions but they made in the same way. The, 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 you know, the Asquith, Edward Gray, I mean, so distant from us as individuals, we still feel in a way that the decisions they take were made in the name of the thing that we still are, and we have an ownership over still whether it was right or wrong. I just want to go back to Nihal on that, because I think what he was saying is that the question of we feeling anything about the First World War or anything is, is the problematic one here, is that 
is that there isn't that sense of of identity, that, that there is a, a, a sense of estrangement from that potential identity. Who do, who do we trust? Who do we trust to frame our national identity? We, we have identity? to do it ourselves. Why should, why should somebody do it for us? I mean, it shifts. It's a social... Well, the Amer the, the, the American Constitution... There are things. Some of us want to be told. Yeah. We want to think, yeah. well... Who's doing this but, for but us? Who's, who's giving us have, that do sense? Do you have an answer, though? To the, <coughs> you're asking that question, who does it? I mean, and also, you both in different ways articulated the notion that you need to have some kind of unifying, um, cohesive symbols and forces and whatever. So, so can you find any consensus here? What would those things be? Who should it be who, who is doing that? And what might those symbols and find, unifiers be? Where we could be? find consensus is you've got to give everybody... There is a job here for schools um, as well as for families and parents. You've got to give people in a democratic society the resources of knowledge and understanding to take a critical position about the questions of who we are. And what, you've got to know what the poppy is and then your democratic citizenship idea is I wear it, I don't wear it, I, you know, I make my choice and you make different choices about it. For example, we don't know, you know the First World War, for example, uh, you know, people watch that BBC think, what should we have done? Some people might feel very distant <coughs> from that, you know, none of my parents had ever set foot on this island or ancestors by the time, because, because they simply won't know that the armies that fought that war actually look more like the Britain of 2014 than the Britain of 1914. And if you knew that, it's a very surprising question for the people who are deeply invested in that whole heritage and history. And it's a slightly surprising question for the people who aren't. So there are chances of contact and encounter to discover a history that we ran away from. You know, it was too complicated, I think, in the classrooms of the 1970s and the 1980s to talk about how those classrooms came about, in which case you've got no account of the society that you now live in. But so, but so you're saying... The curriculum. This, the, schools, the curriculum, the content, that's... Yeah. So is that, is that an idea that works for you? I think that if you... Um, it's quite often said by listeners to my show that um, they feel that the teaching of history completely discounts any contribution made by immigrants to this country. And, you know, the fact that three million South Asians were involved in the First World War, two or three million, <laughs> is something that is not well known about which would, I suppose, give people a sense, second-generation immigrants to this country and third-generation, fourth-generation, that they have an ownership of this country and that they very much have a right to be here because if it wasn't, we'd all be speaking German. Which you'll be fine. <laughs> yes and no. Well, the, rest, oh, okay, right, the rest of us will be in trouble. Uh, just, be just before we go on... Um, Religiously, you wouldn't be fine. But I, want to, I want to go back to... to um, to some of the questions that we came up with earlier. Um, Nihal wanted some words for defining Britishness. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to go to the panel on this, but also the audience. And there was, of course, another question. I should have asked this overwhelmingly um, British audience, which is how many of you feel that you are Europeans or would describe yourselves as Europeans? Can I have a show of hands? And, um, strangely, I see Douglas hasn't got his hand up there. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, never, I wanted to say, never mind failing your Britishness test, because, of course, failure is a very great British... 
concept. And um, in a way, <laughs> ironically... That's one of the part, definitions. But in terms of Europe, you see, I'm, I was indoctrinated because I grew up in a house where my father would regularly pronounce... Well, sentences would begin with the phrase... Now, on the continent, <laughs> dot, 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 and, and uh, that would always introduce something that was in every way superior and better to what happened <laughs> in this country. I think in America they were called the Bionces, because the Germans would say, oh, no, 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 Bionces. Yeah, but when we're back home. <laughs> yeah. So, and then he remains, you know, he's, he's, he's 92 in July. That wow. he, um, so he's lived much the majority of his life here. So it was uh, six, 70 odd years here, and yet he remains absolutely a, a, a Central European, uh, a Brit. But so it, these things are very, very deep. But yes, I'm European, is a short answer. Absolutely. Um, and British. You said um, you've justified. You've justified. Um, lots of things. failure was was one that yeah, came, dabbling. came came early. <laughs> uh, so, so give me give me some British. But I was interested when you asked me, when you forced me to say if I was English or not. English ish. English ish. English ish. Um, Nihal, what, what. I'm. I'm it's, it was your question, so let's have, some, yeah. let's have some notions of what British might be. Um, too eager to please. <laughs> mm. <laughs> One thing my American wife always says is, is that yeah. you chaps. You, well, she doesn't say chaps. She just says... Guys. Yeah, you guys. That's right. She talks like Jack like that. Um, she, she's, she, she always just says, you allow people to do get away with too much. People who come to this country. She, she also says, because she's from Sri Lankan heritage, she says, I don't think they like Asians very much here. She does say that, which I find a bit odd. I've got loads of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie. Well, what Britishness is, I suppose, above all to me, is being um, damp, grey and mild like the weather. Um, uh, Britishness is... Um, the reason why people find it so difficult, and it, this is actually true of Englishness as well, is that Britishness is, uh, is defined by an absence of... Um, British is a civic identity. I mean, the great thing about Britain, and the reason why Britain is, I think, the best country in the world, bar none, including America, for minorities of any kind, is that Britain is a nation of nations. It is a civic umbrella portmanteau uh, 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 title, Britain, uh, for three nations. Um, and, of course, the United Kingdom is, you know, got Northern Ireland in it as well. Um, but, you know, Britain is, th is three nations. Um, and... Uh, it allows, therefore, everybody to be English, Welsh and Scotch, Scots and British, and it allows minorities within those uh, different countries uh, to feel British as well as their cultural and religious identity. And arising from that very unusual um, arrangement of a nation of nations, I think comes the hallmark British characteristic, which is tolerance. Um, and fairness, and an absence of um, uh, extremism, and uh, a, pa a really passionate desire not to be passionate, um, and to, uh, to stand back from people and not encroach, and to allow people their personal space. And that is why Britain is, I think, the most civilised country in the world. 
And that is why we find it so difficult to define it, because much of it is an absence of the things that we actually don't like or get in the way. Um, uh, and so it's, 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 as it were, caught, not taught, as they used to say. Um, uh, in other words, you can't teach it. You can't have a citizenship test. It's, it's ludicrous. It's offensive. It's banal. It lends itself automatically to absurdities. Not surprised you failed it. I think it's a badge of pride you failed it. <laughs> um, you can't teach Britishness. You, you, you imbibe it. You, 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 you inculcate it. Um, and uh, it is, a, it is, a, it is be beyond value, Britishness. But, but Melly, while you use all these highfalutin words, there are a lot of people in the UK who don't use highfalutin words. We're all here in this nice middle-class intellectual well, brought, setting. I, I, I'm just going to interrupt, which is a bad thing for the, the right. chair to do, but I was actually going to make that point earlier, that one of the problems of having this debate here is that we Names Not Numbers has brought the metropolis to yeah. Ulbra. So this is a, this is a, a debate that often, that often takes place in, in sort of the wrong circles. Well, or with, people, with people writing opinion pieces in newspapers will all talk to each other and say, use these words, but how do you then use it, uh, give people such a, a sense of identity that a, a third generation kid in Bolton will get it and understand it and not then allow extremism to get in the way you and to, to be, to be to, absorbed? You have to teach them to love their country. Yes, okay, good, but again, still vague and ambiguous. What, how? How do you teach them? What words do you use? What do you say to them to how teach them teach to love, love? this okay. country? Okay, Sunder, you have, well, a, go, you have a go at that, and then I'm also going to throw this yeah. open to the audience. I, th I think Melanie was right that because it's the civ shared civic identity of a multinational state, firstly, it always had pluralism in it, so it's been easier to become British than French, but actually it's proved possible to say that people can become Scottish, so your other identities can be civic as well. But it's not good enough now for the reasons Neil's given to say, oh, the trick is you can't define it and you'll know it if you stumble across it. Actually, we need to work a bit harder than that on it. But the identity you decide for yourself, the common citizenship, we actually have to agree together what the content is. And it's not that complicated, actually. You do need a common language. You need to be able to laugh at the joke in English. You do need to respect the freedom of speech of other people, the freedom of belief of other people, if you don't agree with them. So you can have freedom to believe and not believe, freedom of religion, and so on. And you need the rule of law. And it doesn't ask, actually, as a shared civic content much more than that. But then you want an emotional attachment to it to come up as well. You want an understanding of why the history of this country. You know, we've got religious tolerance because we didn't have it. And that's how we found it. And therefore, if it's, you know in strain again, you, you decide to do that again. That's what it demands, and it doesn't actually ask you to make sure you support the right sports teams or I, watch the right television programmes, because that doesn't quite feel... That feels a little <laughs> bit too, you know, show us your papers, please. On the, on the sports teams, I, I remember being um, in Scotland when uh, England was playing Argentina, and when Argentina won, suddenly the streets of Scotland were awash with people wearing the Argentinian flag, which the was Tebbit an interesting The test is an one. argument for Scottish independence. That's yeah. not a very good idea. Um, I would like to throw this open to the audience. Um, if anybody wants to try and um, answer this question of what might define Britishness or indeed how one... Or, or Englishness or how one might teach people to feel part of that... Um, I'd like to hear from you, but also at this stage, if anybody has any questions. Um, and please put your 
hands up and um, wait for the microphone. Okay, um, uh, you were first. Um, I think Nihal has possibly a pessimistic view because um, the university sector, I, I spent 20 years uh, teaching economics undergraduates in Cambridge. Um, and still, there the quite strict limits on how many overseas students could be admitted. So they were British. But if you look at their ethnic origin, most years, at least 80% would be second-generation immigrants. And some of them would be quite offended if someone were to imply to them that they weren't British. And I used to, recently went to graduate's wedding, Hindu wedding, marrying a, 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 of ethnic origin white woman and half the guests were of white ethnic origin, and the rest, it was a real mixture of melting pot, and lived in Australia for 15 years, and that's where I think Melanie's point about tolerance <coughs> is incredibly important, because in Australia at that time, the, there wasn't tolerance for the, for the indigenous population. And so I, you, I think... You're talking about Cambridge. I speak to university students from lesser institutions, <coughs> perhaps, <laughs> And they're saying, well, the Hindu society and the Muslim society are not mixed. When I was at university, we had an Asian society. Now you have a Hindu society, a Sikh society, a Muslim society, and they're not mixed, and there are worries that they are becoming increasingly segregated on campus. So my pessimism is well-founded in that respect. You're talking about Cambridge. By virtue of the fact most people get to Cambridge... You know, I don't know what backgrounds they come from. Com I don't know whether they're 50 more... Fifty percent at least comprehend... Well, state schools, state-funded schools. Mm. But so I know, I know Cambridge, but I'm at UCL now and similarly... Again, another elite institution yeah, sure. in that respect, but I'm okay. just talking about what I, what I, the people I speak to and the phone-in shows that I do. People are, are worried about this, mm. that, that, that there is increased... And I'm speaking to someone in the House of Lords, an Asian peer, and she's very worried about this. Okay, no, that's a good point. I, I just know those two universities. Um, just behind, uh, two rows behind, right at the back, yeah. Uh, um, Nihal, I wasn't sure that the problem was highfalutin words. Um, I, you know, if you look historically in terms of people's identification with their nation, they've managed to cope even when they were illiterate. So I think it's a bit more difficult, uh, a challenge that we have now. I, I thought that actually you were onto something though when you said there's a defensiveness about Britishness from people who run Britain. I mean, that seems to me to be, you know, if you want to know why people don't understand what it means to be Britain, then the people who run Britain have spent the last 20 years at least in a kind of self-loathing denial about everything that Britain has ever done. So that seems to me to be slightly problematic and teaching by proxy that things are a disaster. Uh, my, my question to you all is um, the damaging impact of cultural identity uh, being privileged over all else. I mean, even just the question about what would you think Britishness means, that kind of subjective view where we all say what we think our identity is and so on. I mean, you do have a kind of competitive cultural identity question, and often that takes a kind of victim form as well. I feel more offended by you. My cultural identity trumps all else. That seems to have been a wholly negative thing, but it's often one that's embraced as positive in kind of radical progressive circles. But I actually think it's been disastrous. And um, that I am my cultural identity uh, means that, uh, for a, you know, it's far too fluid and it, it's been problematic. And the second question is, 
could you reflect a bit more on Melanie's initial point about democracy? Because the big thing for me is nationalist, you know, being a, a part of a nation is the only thing that gives you any democratic rights. You know, I can assert I'm all sorts of feelings about all sorts of cultural identity I've got, but in the end, my power is that I run this nation state, potentially. Um, not me personally. Um, because I am the person who decides what happens here. And it seems that that aspect of national identity is constantly undermined by transnational organisations <coughs> and by cultural identity, which the only power you have then is to say, I'm offended by that, shut up. But it's a kind of closing down identity rather than a, a, a democratic assertion of rights identity. And if we had democratic rights, we'd be able to decide what our national identity was in a way that Sunder said it shouldn't be handed down. It should be something that we define um, as part of being part of that nation. Great. I'll, I'd like to go back to the panel on, on both of those things um, quickly, if I may. I've, of course, brilliantly left my watch somewhere, so somebody will have to signal at me madly uh, when we're running out of time. But um, are we... Um, where where is the where is the the role of the nation state and democracy in this and also you know should we be discussing cultural <coughs> identity at all are we it, you know should i have should i have started this debate the way that i did or or is that a damaging um proposition um i think you started it splendidly and i think it got us off into a very good start but i think that um the two things go together uh <coughs> the concern that cultural identity has become quite oppressive um, has created a sort of victim culture. That is because we have, I think, uh, as has been implied by Claire's question, uh, undermined the nation and national identity, and consequently we become much more tribalist, um, and it's group against group. That's precisely what's happening, um, and it's a victim culture. And you know, I, as a as a one victim group, am more victimised than you, <coughs> and therefore I claim more rights and I have more power over you. And that's the game that we're now in. It's very regrettable. Um, and it's mm. something which fractures a society. It creates division, it creates hatred, it creates conflict, and it erodes more and more the ties that should bind us. Um, and this is the way a society goes down. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's a very regrettable thing. And uh, insofar as there is a resurgence of, as Stefan suggests, a resurgence of national feeling, or the feeling that we should have a national feeling, um, and this is, you know, it's, it's lurching around in fits and starts across Europe. We can see this is expressing itself in the arrival or the emergence on the scene of extremely unpleasant nationalistic mm -hmm. groups, mm -hmm. uh, which are a cause of concern, but they are arising because there is a vacuum, because the leadership of the Western world has gone down this post-national, transnational route and has encouraged this tribalism on the basis that we're all citizens of the world. And the citizens of the world trope leads directly to this kind of tribalism. So the challenge is to find our way back. And yes, I do use the word back, because I think that you know, sometimes what was in history and our tradition is actually worth, worth preserving and worth, worth re reasserting. Um, national identity is very important in the best sense. Does anybody want to come back Just on briefly that? Just briefly to echo that, and Sunna is absolutely right to remind us of the opening ceremony of the London uh, Olympics, because I, perhaps like other people here, I had a pretty much fixed sneer on my face as that started, the world was going to be like. And by the end of it, I'd really been transported by a wonderfully positive, is backward-looking, but also forward-looking account of, of Britain, which was far less sheepish than the sort of thing that Claire was referring to. There's, there's a lack of ability to say proudly, uh, we're Britain. Uh, then at the Euro Summit, Cameron did another little speech about um, 
penicillin and bouncing bombs and things. I think, well, he's not quite the creative artist that Danny Boyle and his team were, but it was a plucky try. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's Peter. I can't see very well, but... <coughs> I think, along with Melanie's idea of uh, damp, grey and mild, you should add lazy, because <laughs> we've been lazy about this. And I, th I think it's very understandable why we were lazy in the first place, because our national identity is so f firmly forged in history, in the geography, in the collectivity of nations, all those things, that most Brits, most of the time, felt it was almost gauche, in the American way, you had to talk about nation national identity. It, you know, it was silly talk. It was sort of, you know, university lecturer talk. Nobody should talk... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that language... Because it was self <laughs> precisely, <laughs> precisely because it was self-evident. <laughs> British identity was self-evident, and we would never have to employ the techniques that America had integrating a nation of immigrants because we weren't one, or we didn't think of ourselves as one. And that attitude persisted through a period of in absolutely intense change and people were lazy about it. And now, we're now talking about national programmes, and I think, you know, the cultural identity, the cultural test, um, sounds idiotic. I haven't tried it. It's wonderful that you failed it. But <laughs> what should we be doing? What measures should, um, should we be following because the world has changed? What should we be doing to stop st streets, little inner urban villages, where everybody is content to speak Urdu unto the third and fourth generations? Because that's a problem. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, we started uh, feeling our way around these sort of practical issues of what do we do, but also the, the question <laughs> Nihal kept coming back to, who, who does it? And uh, Sander suggested schools, but does anybody, does anybody want to come back on these very important points? Um, uh, I, I do, by the way, love the, the addition to the definition of embarrassed anti-intellectuals, because that's... Uh, <laughs> That the, those are two two uh, descriptors that I think I've encountered very frequently in this country. <coughs> um, does anybody want to come back on these practical? Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think that's right because you didn't need to do it for a while, and now people want to do it. And actually, the nations that have done it well, you know, Canada in its own way has done it in the way that a country sitting on top of America does it. Australia has done it in its own way. The countries that have felt they have to do it have, have done it well. And if you, if you don't do it at all, you know, Scotland has actually done more of it than England has, although the English did the, the British thing. Once people want to have that conversation, and it's all going on out there, the worst possible thing to say is we're slightly afraid of the conversation you want to have. And actually, now that the English have understood that being English and British aren't the same thing, which took, um, you know, 
about 50 years or 200 years to, to realise the difference, to actually say, but that's, that's the worrying conversation, actually. That's the conversation we don't want to have. We bet that one takes us to a nasty place. It will be some sort of 1970s NF conversation rather than a conversation just in the England of <coughs> 2014. That will be a very dangerous thing to do. And the cultural difference point, I think, was well made because, uh, you know, multiculturalism was never my favourite thing. The, the, the groups are quite neat and tidy. If you're half Indian, half Irish, you haven't got a team. I'm not, I'm not down on tribes, inclusive tribes, the national civic kind of tribe, the local football team in a diverse <laughs> town where everyone feels they can turn up. Those are good tribes because they, they include and people, pe pe people, people, people want tribes, actually. But you've got to make them capable of being equally owned, I think. Can I, I want to hear from Martin Davidson because Martin Davidson runs the British Council and travels around the world and he will speak to lots of people as spectators who will probably have a better idea of what Britishness means because they don't live in Britain and they see it from the outside. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, you do run the British Council. Um, one of the... Uh, you, you talked about the, the Danny Boyle uh, opening ceremony. I was the privilege of being there. It was absolutely fantastic to be there, and the sheer degree of emotion in the stadium was fa fabulous. I was sitting next door to the producer from uh, NBC who, were go who was going to have to put... It was being delayed so it could be shown on the East Coast at the right time. And at one point he turned around to me and he said, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to the great American people. And the guy in front of me turned around to him and said, we don't care. Yeah. And exactly. that struck me as being <laughs> an ideal that. articulation exactly. of, of Britishness at yeah. that particular moment. <laughs> but I, I'd like to just pick up on the point that I think Melanie made right at the very beginning, which is we shouldn't be articulating our identity versus somebody else. And I would actually challenge that a little bit because I think we can only see properly ourselves if we see it through the eyes of others. And what nobody's actually asked the question, what do people outside this country think about us? And there is something yes, that's, massively, that's Nihal, massively Nihal's attractive put you on the spot to about exactly the way question. we're seen. But also, it seems to me, we can only see ourselves if we actually are able to have that conversation with other people. And one of the real problems we have as a country, we are disgracefully under educating people in foreign languages and their ability to engage with people in other parts of the world. There are 500,000 foreign students studying in this country. There are probably less than 20,000 British students studying overseas at the most generous possible estimate you can have. Unless we actually get young people from this country to actually engage with people elsewhere, it's very difficult for them to be able to see themselves reflected in other, pe other people's views. And it seems to me that that reflection is vitally important for you to be able to see yourself. If you haven't got a mirror, it's very difficult to see yourself. And Martin, I think that's one of the we problems have we have. in this country, unlike many other countries in the world, in cities certainly, a lot of the world is here. So unlike other countries perhaps, which aren't as multicultural as ours, can't our young people mix? <laughs> they, our young people mix with people from all different backgrounds in a way that perhaps German kids, well, maybe not German kids. I think, I think that's Manchester, the critical point. Birmingham, really? Glasgow? I, I, Birmingham? Leicester, Leicester's going to be a predominantly ethnic minority city in the next three or four years. So, yeah, but you have a very multicultural city, much more so than perhaps if you went to Madrid. That's what I agree with. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm aware of that. I have callers who, who call up my show from Birmingham, from Leicester, from Leeds, from Bradford. These are multicultural places. 
we are we are spoilt by multiculturalism in that way in in a way that other European countries are. No, would you agree? Um, what, what Martin said about the Olympic Open Centre is completely right. It's what I really uh, liked about it, really, is that, you know, you chuck James Bond and the Queen and Mr Bean in, so there were some recognisable symbols, but the references were for the domestic <coughs> audience. And the reason you had to do that, it was really important to do that, was that you start with the question, what story do we want to tell to the rest of the world? And actually, you haven't had the conversation here about the story you want to tell to the rest of the world. And I think that's what changed from the sort of Millennium Dome kind of moment yeah. uh, after 7-7, it became much more important to know here what the conversation was that we wanted to have and wanted to say to ourselves, rather than saying, you know, what really matters is what people in Taiwan think about us. This is a branding issue. It's not. It's a how we live together issue. It's not Great Britain. It's a, but, but that doesn't really fill the gap, does it? Okay, more questions. Um, yeah, up at the back, and then this gentleman down <coughs> here. I was going to ask everybody about my children's school. I'll tell you what's going on there. Um, it's a lovely school. It's very multicultural. We've got lots of Somali refugees, big Pakistani community, big Turkish community. Um, when you go in, in the morning to the school, you do not hear English spoken because all the parents talk to their kids in the playground and in all, on all the school premises, in the classrooms, in their language. And recently, there was a bit of a fuss in the school where a group of parents got together and wanted to go to the head to say, look... Is there any way you could say to the parents, could you possibly just speak English on the school premises? Wow. <laughs> I know, it turned into a big, big round. And this body of parents sort of got bigger. I wasn't one of them, by the way. Because um, I just thought if you start why saying... Not? I'll tell you why. Because I thought if you start saying to those groups of parents, can you speak English, please, on the school grounds? There's Japanese parents there, there's French. Do you then start saying to everybody, you can't speak your language in public? Where do you go next? Mm. The tube, colleges. So it, it did sort of worry me. But on the other hand, one of the parents was put quite a good case about, you know, we're trying to make these children feel a sense of unity. We're trying to get everybody talking together. And it feels like the Tower of Babel in the school in the morning because nobody's communicating. And as a result, not just the children, but the parents are in small groups. You've got the Somali parents, you've got the Turkish parents, you've got the Pakistani parents, and we don't really mix, it's true. I just wondered what people thought about that, the idea of actually saying to a group of parents on school premises, can you talk English? We've, we, um, in our last five minutes, so can I get you to come back on that really quickly, then I'm going to go to that gentleman there. We're, we're too scared to do that, aren't we? In Singapore, they have their public housing is that there has to be quotas of people from different backgrounds in public housing, uh, which they, you know, which statistically looks like it, it, it helps integration. We, we wouldn't do that here, would we? We wouldn't, we, we feel profoundly uncomfortable with telling people that they should do that. And I wonder whether we should get over that. There's, I thought there's a point on both sides of that conversation. You're not the sort of country that wants to say foreign languages verboten on the tube, but what you'd like the school to do is bring about contact between the parents so the parents meet and have contact. And the common language is what matters that the children have and grow up in. That's why the schools do well. You don't then insist that people can't speak their own language as well, but you're encouraging more contact because if people are just in their national groups... But do we have to stop good. becoming more strict with this? Do we have to, in order to avoid... The, the whole sleepwalking into segregation thing. But, don't, yeah. but, but do we have to compel 
rather than suggest. Because you you're, you're, you're saying you can, you're not making contact happen. You you're a, suggesting. If you know, okay, hold a meeting for all the parents. That will be in English. But no, but what if you don't want children? You don't want children turn up. What if they will just go? Then you should say it will be good for them and their kids in the school that you do that. And then you should expect the, it. Well, we can't make you speaking can't your mother tongue a thought crime, can we? Really? No. This is ridiculous. On school premises, could you say, we want you to speak English because we want you all to talk to each other? So you don't make it a thought crime. You're not doing, you don't come at it from a negative thing. You come at it from a positive. But there's a naughty boy in my daughter's class called Kuba, whose parents are Polish. And she tries sometimes to get his attention. But when he's really in trouble, she has to shout Polish at him to get, to get him to stop. And that works. And that, why, why can't we can't stop her from doing that? That would be ridiculous. Coobs. Mm. Um, That's what she shouts. Here's a lot. Now I know how to this, shout at This may be our, our, last, our last question here. I've spent most of my life uh, either working in or serving um, vast multinational corporations. And from time to time, going on the uh, team meetings, the, the global get-togethers, I always feel humbled by the a sense that there is something much greater than one's own little nationality. It's accepted, often in a rather light-hearted way, but there's a much bigger uh, stage on which uh, a, a great multinational works. Uh, it, respects, it respects up to a point the nation-state it's more interested in the global groups and the uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa. EMEA is a well-known part of the language of multinationals. And I think we have, have much to learn, as Martin uh, indicated a moment ago, that uh, how we're seen. I'm, as I said, humbled by the presence of those events. And I see around me people who are... Uh, so bright and so uh, uh, I, I learn a great deal about myself and my Britishness from that and we're part of a much greater uh, uh, enterprise. Now that... why can't we do that in a rather more you know, debate like this? We need to open our shoulders a bit and see us in the context of this. I'm seeing in front of me is uh, Matt Peacock of Vodafone, and I'm sure that uh, you, Matt, will have, uh, Vodafone will have, as a great multinational, many similar points. You as a Brit there uh, is just one part of the jigsaw, but your loyalty to that magnificent business is, is, is what's on the table. Not, is, not your Britishness. Can, can, I, can I just check? Is this, is this a, a late-breaking... Um argument in favour of world citizenship because one of the striking things about this about this yes, panel was was that you know I knew that everybody was going to come at this from different viewpoints but that can there I, hasn't really been anybody on Catherine, this panel I just who's jump spoken in for up two seconds just to clarify I I, I I agree with that however I'd say that the multinational is an alternative nation state in that context and and uh, you, you and park a, your nationality by the door and you have a logo above in the, you know, in the room where you are, and that logo defines who you are when you're in that room. And it needs its licence to operate from the citizens of nation-states, so you'd better make sure you've got that. Um, well, yes, I'm just trying to find out how are we doing for time. Do we have... Do we have... OK, all right. Sorry, who... OK, Charlie in the middle. <laughs> Stefan's taken over from me, as, as, is, as is right. Uh, perhaps the last... Um, 
question or answer, which would be, my suggestion is that you give everyone a, a tape of a Morecambe and Wise Christmas edition and say, <laughs> if you don't get this, then you can't be British. <laughs> until you do, you can't leave the room. Um, that, that's, that's an excellent idea, and I hope that you'll all leave uh, today doing the Morecambe and Wise sunshine dance. Um, okay, let's just fit in the very last question down there. I just wanted to come back on what was said about language because I think that is a very important part of nationhood and, and understanding where you um, belong. And I've taught and dealt with a lot of uh, second-generation people, who, uh, young people who have had problems with their written work. Um, and often it's because they have had parents who have not uh, made any great attempt to learn English properly, so they're having to speak a second language as soon as they go home. And the schools tell them that they're bilingual and they'll come into you and their English is, is really embarrassingly bad, but they think it's all right. And the reason is that often the parents who won't learn English are not that articulate or literate in their own mother tongue, which is why they don't understand the importance of language or struggle with it. And as a result, their children learn English to the same level that they're speaking their mother tongue. Um, and so they come in with, with this work, and you say to them, actually, you're not bilingual, you're semilingual. You can speak one language in, in a pigeon fashion and another language in a pigeon fashion. Let's see how we can get you up to speed. And I think these are very important points because it always comes back to class, really, uh, Nihal, when you're talking about people ringing and saying, I don't feel this or I don't feel that. It will be the same if you're white and you uh, are yeah. struggling with speaking uh, confidently. The fact is that language and communication in every nation is what makes you understand what being part of that nation is. And it's interesting that those people who can't define to you what Britishness is are probably the white equivalent of the callers that you're getting on your programme. Mm. Um, I think that was... a. Uh, um excellent uh, point to, to leave this debate on, not least because you actually used the word class for the first time in the debate, which of course has been hanging over this uh, unspoken in a, in a very typically British way. Um, so I would uh, like to thank everybody on this panel very much and also those of you who uh, forego, for, forewent uh, the, uh, the wonderful thank you. Sunshine out there um, to come to this debate this morning. So uh, thank you all very much. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.